environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This, this is, is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer. And I am Brandon Golm. Today's guest is Marissa Grunis. Marissa is an environmental fellow at the Harvard University Center for the Environment, where she is at work at, on a narrative nonfiction book called Incognita, A Portrait of Antarctica. She studied comparative literature in German and Spanish at Yale and earned her PhD in English Lit from Harvard, where she studied 19th century American literature and log cabins. So welcome, Marissa, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. So today's root word is, of course, Antarctica. The Antarctic, or South Polar Regions, are named in opposition to the Arctic, or North Pole. The ant meaning anti or oppose, and Arctic coming from the Greek arctos meaning bear, which refers to the northern constellation of the Great Bear, or Ursa Major. This naming of the bear also nicely reflects the fact that polar bears live only at the North Pole. And so at first, the etymology of Antarctica may seem a little uninteresting, seeing as it's just named for what it's opposite to. But this naming actually reveals something fundamental about the human conception of the planet. For to recognise that the Earth has two poles, to recognise that the Arctic and Antarctic are polar opposites, is to recognise that the Earth is a globe, something that humans have known at least since Pythagoras in 500 BCE. The famous Earthrise picture of 1968, the first photograph of the Earth taken from the Moon, is often credited with sparking an ecological consciousness of the Earth as a globe. But in fact, such a consciousness is already revealed in the ancient vision of the Earth as a globe needed to conceive of the two poles as opposites, as Arctic and Antarctic. And, as Marissa's project is exploring, thinking about the Antarctic today again requires a whole Earth conception since this place that is spatially and symbolically so far away from us is revealed to be intimately connected to our lives, our actions, and our futures. Marissa, can you start us off by explaining why thinking about Antarctica has such global environmental and sociopolitical significance right now? So I think that in a lot of ways, you really hit the nail on the head with your introduction, Gemma, um, with the, the etymology of the word Antarctic. I think we do often think about Antarctica as extremely far away from us, but in a way it's becoming closer and closer, uh, less remote over the, particularly over the last hundred years or so. Um, and, and this has been the case for a number of reasons. Um, as we learn how interconnected the earth systems are, uh, in our planet in geology, oceanography, atmospheric sciences, how all of these things interact with each other. We're coming to find that this place that's so very far away has a significant impact on stabilizing the climate, the world's oceans, um, the, the cold water that circulates around Antarctica uh, moves through every single ocean on the planet. So, so we're learning more about the place. Our technology is allowing us to go there with greater frequency, um, and at the same time, we're finding that Antarctica is coming to us. Uh, and of course, the biggest issue around this is uh, global sea rise and the danger of melting in the Antarctic. Um, 
And the reason that the Antarctic is so important in this respect is because particularly the West Antarctic ice sheet, which is a huge, uh, basically sheet of ice, as it sounds, that covers West Antarctica, um, which is in fact the smaller of the two parts of Antarctica. There's East Antarctica, which is up on a plateau, and then uh, West Antarctica, which is, has much lower topography and is, is a bit smaller. Because it has lower topography and is smaller, it's much more vulnerable. And the melting of the West Antarctic ice sheet is one of the key physical tipping points that climate scientists are concerned about right now. When I say tipping point, I mean uh, a, a physical process that once begun might be irreversible and, and have catastrophic consequences. Um, so when I talk about the melting of West Antarctica as a tipping point, what I mean is that there's a danger because of how low Antarctica, uh, the West Antarctic ice sheet, sits in the topography that the warming water, not the air, but the warming water around West Antarctica is eating away at the bottom of the ice sheet there. Um, and because of, because of the way glaciers work, the West Antarctic ice sheet is not going to melt like an ice cube. It's not going to melt slowly. It's going to collapse like a cathedral. Um, this is because as the water eats away underneath the, the ice shelf, the, the sort of floating fringes of the ice sheet, which are these shelves, um, they basically all collapse. And then the water can flow down that low topography, almost like into a bowl, and keep eating away underneath the ice sheet. And you've got five meters of sea level rise right there. That's 15 feet of sea level rise if the West Antarctic ice sheet were to collapse. We have evidence that it may have collapsed about uh, 130,000 years ago um, at a time when the ambient temperatures were roughly what they are today. That means you're looking at a, a now critically unstable, or we think it may be critically unstable, ice sheet that could put every coastal city in the world essentially underwater. Um, within one to two centuries, possibly. We don't exactly know how fast it will go, how that will work. So that's sort of at the moment with uh, the danger of warming ocean temperatures in particular and also ambient temperatures. Uh, that's really the thing that's putting Antarctica on the map, uh, as it were. Well, and I think uh, when you first started talking, uh, you, you had said, you know, uh, it's getting easier to kind of bring Antarctica to us. Um, forgive me if I'm not not exactly, um, you know, uh, quoting you, you correctly, but it was that 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 general idea. Um, and I was just, I think it was, I mean, maybe two or three weeks ago at this point, um, there was a video going around on Twitter um, of like some drone footage where there's um, this the giant kind of of cracking. Um, happening in, in, in Antarctica right now. And, um, I can't remember where exactly it was. Um, but there's, there's, I think there's something where I mean, maybe, I don't know if metaphor is the right word, but we've, I think we've talked before on, on the podcast and, and certainly, you know, some of my own work, um, is how, how do we represent something that, that, does is happening over decades, right? That, that to, to, to visualize something for, um, our bodies, which, which is happening, you know, we, we recognize things on days and months and, and maybe years. Um, but this stuff's happening, you know, over, over large periods of time. And so I, I'm wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about how 
Antarctica itself, it, you know, functions as this kind of um, visualizing for us of of the dangers, of the the immediacy of of these things that are happening over over long periods of time um, that allow us to kind of see them in the moment. Um, I don't know if I'm, I'm kind of phrasing that correctly, but. Yeah, that, that makes, first of all, that makes perfect sense. And that's actually a way that a lot of Antarctic scientists, people who do research there think about Antarctica um, as a sort of canary in the coal mine, um, but also as a, a place where change is happening so much faster than pretty much anywhere else in the world. Um, there's a phenomenon known as polar amplification. Won't get into the technical details here, but it essentially means that uh, the warming happens at a much faster rate at the poles. Um, and this partly has to do with the way that the ice interacts with the sun. Um, it's melting much faster than it um than we initially expected that it would. Um, and we've seen this in the Arctic. So you're absolutely right. Uh, I think a, a really terrifying instance of this uh, is something that actually appears in um, the film The Day After Tomorrow from 2004, uh, which has a sort of dramatization of one of these cracks appearing in what's called the Larsen B ice shelf, uh, which is one of these floating ice shelves that fringes the ice sheet the way that I was talking about before. Um, and in that, uh, in that event that's dramatized in that film, over the course of one month, total of 35 days, we saw an area the size of Rhode Island, 1,250 square miles of ice collapse. And when I say collapse, I mean they were gone. They basically broke up into little, that, uh, that ice shelf broke up into little tiny pieces, tiny relative to Antarctica, um, which is a place that has icebergs the size of Delaware. Uh, but break up and then those pieces washed away and melted gradually. And this was something that you can see happening over the course of days. So it is happening in our lifetimes. And for that reason, it has this sort of potential visual power, as you're saying, to, in a way, give us a microcosm of sort of what we're potentially looking at happening in the future with our changing climate. It's a natural laboratory is how a lot of people refer to it who work there. Um, the interesting thing when you think about this question is that Antarctica is mind-bogglingly massive. I mean, it, it, the ice sheet there is 10 times the size of the Greenland ice sheet. When I say there are icebergs the size of Delaware, that's not an exaggeration. So in the, the actual size of Antarctica, it's, it's huge. And so for a long time, researchers actually thought it's untouchable. There's, there's no real danger of it collapsing or melting as, um, with any kind of speed as the earth is warming. And one of the things that a researcher, uh, recently told me that he works on whales, um, in around the Antarctic Peninsula. And he said that one thing that breaks his heart is that you look at this place and it's so unimaginably huge and the ice is so massive and powerful and it's a place that's really hostile to human life. It, we just do not belong there. And yet we have this capacity to destroy it. 
in, in a very short amount of time. And you can see that in the population of the penguins that are declining and the, the whales that are declining. You can see that in the way the glaciers are visibly melting and retreating uh, on a essentially year-to-year basis. So I don't know if that's quite answering your question, but I do think that it's uh, what you're describing is definitely something that, that people are very aware of. And, and I think something about that tension or contrast between how inhuman it is and how massive and seemingly impermeable to change contrasted with how quickly it's all falling apart in some ways is a really poignant testament to what we're capable of doing, I suppose, as people. Um, and it is something that I think gives Antarctica a very unique um, place in representations of how we're changing the planet. Mm. What really struck me when you, um, when you were talking about the, the potential five meter sea level rise in your previous answer and then you know kind of thinking about what you've just said like you know we are destroying and transforming ecosystems all over the planet but very few of them have like have such a tangible effect on the rest of the planet you know what I mean we can we can kind of like destroy some tropical ecosystem and be like well it's not really going to affect that my life that much right now but to to be like okay if we destroy this place then you know hundreds of cities around the world and I guess like billions of people are going to be displaced is just yeah insane but yeah so what is the plan for your research specifically like you're not a scientist so what are you what are you doing what are you finding out about Antarctica? What kind of book are you hoping to write? So as you can probably tell uh, from from what I've been saying, yes, I'm not a scientist, but I'm talking to a lot of scientists. So the number one thing that I've been doing is just interviewing dozens and dozens of researchers, often at the top of their fields, at institutions around the world, people who have spent in some cases, cumulative months or years of their lives in Antarctica in order to understand some of the cutting edge scientific problems that researchers are thinking about moving forward um, and, and what some of the big questions are that they're asking and, and trying to understand. Um, so to give you a sense of what the, the book is going to look like, I hope, um, I'm essentially pairing geographical features with scientific disciplines. And I'm doing that by moving in concentric circles from the outer edges of the region. So the marine uh, ecosystem that surrounds Antarctica and the sea ice, and then those glacial shelves that I was talking about that sort of shelve out over the water that are so fragile. Um, inwards across the ice sheet and the mountains, the bedrock to the South Pole. And for each of these different regions, um, or rather for each of these different aspects or features of Antarctica, I'm also talking about the relevant scientific disciplines 
both going back in time and looking into the future. So to give you an example, I've been working on a chapter thinking about the ancient geological history of Antarctica when it was part of Gondwana land. Uh, so we're talking now more than 180 million years ago. And um, I'm starting that chapter off with the anecdote, uh, quite powerful anecdote and rather tragic of Robert Scott, who was a one of the heroic age British explorers who uh, in 1911 to 1912 went to the South Pole, found out he was not first, but second to arrive there. And on his disappointing return, uh, lost his life along with the lives of the four men who had journeyed with him. And about a month before he died, possibly in order to offer a bit of a rest to himself and his party, uh, particularly one of them who was quite sick, he stopped at a place near what's called the Beardmore Glacier to do a day of geologizing where uh, they went around gathering fossils of an ancient, now extinct, tree called Glossopteris. And these fossils, they then carried roughly 35 pounds of fossils with them for the next month. The fossils were found with their bodies a few months later when the rescue team came out looking for them and were sent to Cambridge and were essentially the key bit of information, the key piece of evidence that was needed in order to prove that Antarctica had been part of Gondwana land in the past. They were monumentally important at the time. And this is a period when people were still debating whether plate tectonics, which wasn't even a theory at the time, they were still debating whether continental drift, which would become plate tectonics, was a real thing and how it worked. So this was Really, and Glossop Terrace was a very important part of this story. So you can see I, I'm sort of trying to bring together those questions with then talking with geologists today about, okay, so what's important for us to understand about this past history of Antarctica and how it's changed in the past from when it was part of Gondwana land and was forested and had trees growing on it and was, you know, warm, even though it was over the South Pole. What can we learn from that? in order to think about what's going forward. And hopefully, along with all of this history and all of this science, uh, I will also be able to actually go to Antarctica. Um, so I'm trying to talk to everybody I know who has ever been there on, in any capacity, not just the researchers, but also their field staff. I mean, these people are amazing. They are, they're a reminder that scientists really are the great explorers of our day and, and the field techs as well. The people who support them really are sort of at the edge of knowledge and discovery. Um, I'm talking to current NASA astronauts who have been to Antarctica. I'm talking to engineers, tour guide operators, um, a whole range of people who, who work any kind of job um, to get a sense of what it's like. And I'm hoping that once the pandemic uh, is under control and we're, you know, it's safe to move around again, I'll be able to go there and tie in also just some of the wonder of this place and, and the incredible adventure. It's, it's like nowhere else on earth from everything I've heard and from everything I've read. Um, and I want to be able to also bring that sense of wonder into the book. Uh, so I, I want to maybe have us take a step back a little bit because I'm, I'm I think as I'm sitting here I'm very curious 
to hear a little bit more about your maybe your personal journey. How do you go from uh, you know German and Spanish literature um, to this kind of very real hands-on? Um, like I want to, I want to get in Antarctica and and kind of be there and experience that and and think about these these things. So, so can, what what drew you to um, to thinking about Antarctica in this way? So you might be surprised at the intersection between literature uh, and Antarctica. I certainly was. Um, so I was initially actually drawn to it by learning about the history of exploration um, and. This was a sort of a journey that I started a long time ago. I was interning when I was a kid, basically, uh, at the Smithsonian Institution, the Natural History Museum there. And the Smithsonian Institution's holdings are all seeded from a set of artifacts and specimens that were brought back in 1842 by the first and I think possibly the only federally funded voyage of exploration that was sent out across the world to basically map essentially a lot of the Pacific um, and and try to get better charts for, for mariners. And one of their key goals of this expedition was to discover whether or not there was an Antarctic continent. So here I am you know, basically doing uh, intern work, pulling specimens and things like that. This incredible collection, this absolutely phenomenal museum, and all of it was formed to protect these materials and to study these materials that came from an expedition that actually discovered Antarctica. Now, the specimens I was looking at or I was pulling had nothing to do with Antarctica, but I was so fascinated by, by why this would have been um, so important to these people in 18, the 1840s, of all things, coming from the United States. And the answer, in fact, is economic, in part, and also, um, also cultural. So there was this fascination with Antarctica in the United States because of the whaling and sealing industries that would go down, you know, the, the whalers and sealers would go down into the far South, uh, and the United States dominated these industries, uh, in order to search for their quarry. Uh, and they really devastated the environment down there, which is something that actually we are still dealing with the fallout from. And American writers were writing about these things. So Melville's Moby Dick has all manner of references to Antarctica in it. And Melville, in fact, read the account that was written of this expedition. Emerson mentions it. Emily Dickinson mentions it. Thoreau mentions it in Walden. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne wanted to go on this expedition to be the official chronicler. He was, unfortunately, he was not uh, granted a place. So we are deprived of what that would have looked like, which I think would have been amazing. Edgar Allan Poe wrote a novel inspired by it. He actually was one of the major voices uh, pushing for this expedition to happen. Why Antarctica? I mean, in, in part, it was a way for the United States to put their name on on the map in a sort of large-scale way that would not be imperialist in any explicit sense, 
but would put them sort of at on par with other European nations who they were trying to basically were trying to reach the same level of international importance as these other European nations as in, you know, the way that they were seeing it. So how do I come from literature? You know, when I say I studied Spanish and German literature, a lot of that was looking at interactions among, um, among Spanish, German and English language uh, poetry and an American literature has ultimately been sort of where I've landed. And so this whole history of 19th century American literature and fascination with Antarctica, that's what led me to it. And once you start getting into Antarctica, it just, they, they call it getting the ice in your veins. You get the ice in your veins and I mean, the place just takes hold of you. So I don't take any credit for, for, uh, <laughs> for becoming interested in it. Credit goes to Antarctica. So, and with these, with these literary references that, that you just gave, um, are there kind of patterns or themes in, in, in how Antarctica is represented in literature? Are there like kind of divides between different places or like what, what have you found in the literature? So one of the earliest instances of in which Antarctica appears in literature is in, uh, actually Coleridge's Rime of the Ancient Mariner. And this was written after James Cook in the 17, late 1700s was sent down to Antarctica in order to try to figure out whether there was a continent there. He was not ultimately successful in determining whether or not there was, but he suspected there might be. Um, he was basically stopped by this massive barrier of ice and he had to turn north. Um, and he has a quote from his journals when he reached his, his furthest south point uh, that any person had ever reached called his Neplu Ultra, his No More Beyond. Uh, he, he wrote in his journal that, that he is turning around and he says, I whose ambition leads me not only farther than any other man has been before me, but as far as I think it possible for man to go, was not sorry at meeting with this interruption, that is the ice, as it in some measure relieved us from the dangers and hardships inseparable with the navigation of the South Polar regions. And that quote, as far as I think it possible for man to go, that really is what characterizes how Antarctica is represented in literature. So Coleridge picks this up in The Rime of the Ancient Mariner when the ship is driven by gales southwards, becomes icy cold, and they find the albatross. And the mariner, not to spoil anything, kills the albatross, and they find themselves in this, this world of fog and mist and ice, and it's mysterious and they, they're trapped in a way and everything goes downhill from there, uh, in, in the poem, if you've read it. Once you get to literature from the United States as they were going down to Antarctica in the 1820s, the 1830s, the 1840s, you similarly get this sense of Antarctica as a place that has been marked off in some sense as a place humans don't belong. And because of that, it's, it's something that attracts a kind of curiosity and drive and ambition that have 
both a sort of grandeur and also the potential for hubris. So one of my favorite examples um, is Captain Ahab in Moby Dick, who's almost certainly modeled in part on Charles Wilkes, who was the person who led the expedition that went down south and brought back all the artifacts that founded the Smithsonian in 1842. So Charles Wilkes, who led this expedition, almost certainly he was obsessed with Antarctica in the same way that Cape Captain Ahab is obsessed with hunting down Moby Dick. You've got the white continent, you've got the white whale. And the white whale, for, for Melville, in part, it comes to represent humankind's uh, fascination with conquering the inhuman, conquering the natural world, conquering the inhuman sublime, trying to find the most dramatic sort of powerful emblems of what is not human and bringing them under some kind of control, whether that control be uh, a form of knowledge production or simply capturing and killing something or trying to understand it in some essential way. And I think that Melville was, was, had in mind this sort of obsession that drove Wilkes and that also you find again and again, even down to today in literature about Antarctica, that Antarctica just has this power to provoke, partly because of all these things we've been talking about, how huge it is, how seemingly impervious to our influence, how hostile. It's like outer space. It's a frontier. It has this kind of drive. And so you also see a lot of science fiction, a lot of horror, sort of unearthing things that maybe should be left alone, questions about what human hubris sort of drives us, human curiosity as both uh, inspiring and also as hubristic and dangerous. Uh, and even if you come to a movie like The Thing in 1982, which then, you know, there's a, a new version of it from 2011, you're getting a lot of these same images. And in fact, a lot of them can be traced back to some of Edgar Allan Poe's writing. Uh, and then H.P. Lovecraft picks up on some of these things uh, in, in his sort of horror novella about Antarctica, carries it forward to today. So there's a pretty consistent, in a way, within English-speaking uh, language literature, there's a pretty consistent set of ideas. And then in, in a lot of other languages, I'm not as familiar with a lot of the literature in other languages, but there is also a sense of this sort of wonder, and you get this in Spanish language poetry from Chile and Argentina in particular. These are places that have pretty considerable geopolitical investment in Antarctica. So there's a sense of uh, sort of identifying with the place. And that comes consistently, I think, for anybody who wants to think about Antarctica as um, both inhuman and somehow connected to them, to their country, to their cultural tradition. You mentioned kind of, uh, you know, some of these different different literary works. I'm wondering if you could maybe read us uh, one or two examples of some some poems and perhaps, you know, then just discuss a little bit what, what they're doing, how they're engaging with these ideas, um, how they're using, you know, the, the perhaps the explorer's works um, as kind of their foundation or basis. Um, anything like that. Sure. So I think one poem that really beautifully encapsulates a lot of the things that we've been talking about was actually written in Antarctica by one of the people who 
was part of that tragic expedition to the South Pole led by Robert Scott, which is one of the most famous incidents in Antarctic exploring history. Uh, his name was Edward Wilson. He was, by all accounts, a really brilliant and kind man. He was known as Uncle Bill. And he, he was a scientist, researcher. He was the one who noticed the Glossopteris fossils uh, that the Scott group collected. He also was uh, particularly known for his incredibly accurate drawings and paintings of optical phenomena and glaciers and animals and wildlife and all sorts of things in Antarctica. And as far as we know, he seems to have only written one poem, which was published in something called the South Polar Times uh, in 1911, just two weeks before he left for the South Pole on the, on the journey to the South Pole that would ultimately kill him and all of his companions. So this poem is called The Barrier Silence. And I think you'll find that a lot of the, um, a lot of the themes we've been talking about appear in here. Interestingly, it's written in the same, uh, metrical scheme as Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. So I think he had some early British Antarctic sort of cultural uh, involvement on his mind. The Barrier Silence by Edward Wilson from October 1911. The silence was deep with a breath like sleep as our sledge runners slid on the snow and the fateful fall of our fur-clad feet struck mute like a silent blow on a questioning hush as the settling crust shrank shivering over the flow. And the sledge in its track sent a whisper back, which was lost in a white fog bow. And this was the thought that the silence wrought as it scorched and froze us through. Though secrets hidden are all forbidden, till God means man to know. We might be the men God meant should know the heart of the barrier snow. In the heat of the sun and the glow and the glare from the glistening flow, as it scorched and froze us through and through with the bite of the drifting snow. Thank you. That was a, yeah, really wonderful reading as well. I really enjoyed hearing that. One of the things that you'll hear in this poem is this image of secrets that are forbidden. And this really was one of the key elements of the Antarctic that appears again and again, as we had discussed in English language discussions of Antarctica, going back at this point now for over a hundred years. One of the things that I find so engaging about this poem is the sound, the way that sound appears in it. So he is taking the, the same metrical pattern as Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and it gives it that sing-songy feeling that, that you may have gotten from it. But he does something a bit different in that he repeats some of the same rhymes again and again. So we get snow, blow, flow. Flow in this sense is actually F-L-O-E, which is an ice flow, refers to the ice over which they're walking. Fog bow. A fog bow is basically a rainbow, but it's one that's seen through the very tiny droplets of water in fog. 
Edward Wilson was particularly known for both at the time and now is known for among Antarcticans is his brilliant renderings of these optical phenomena. So this is something, this visual aspect is something he's very familiar with, but now he's incorporating it into this sort of fluid, uh, almost flow of these O sounds. And then we have through, no, no, snow, glow, flow, through, snow. He piles them all on at the end. And I think part of what this gives you a sense of is just the vastness of the landscape and a sense of what it was like to move through the sort of, how to put it, astonishing, mind-bending monotony of a place as big and frozen as Antarctica. So when he wrote this poem, he had just recently come back from uh, a journey as part of the Scott expedition that is colloquially known these days as the worst journey in the world. It was a journey that was made by him and two companions to Cape Crozier in order to bring back emperor penguin eggs, which they did successfully. It's not exactly clear that we learned anything from those penguin eggs, but one of the interesting things about the Scott expedition is that Scott was really fascinated by science and really wanted to basically risk quite a bit. And, and these men all put their lives on the line for scientific knowledge. So he had had quite a bit of experience of just walking, dragging the sledges. And he uh, illustrated this poem with an image of three men in silhouette dragging what would have been probably 300 pounds uh in a harness that was attached, it was in a sledge that was harnessed to them with leather straps. They were basically walking for hundreds of miles across the ice, dragging this thing. And so I think some of the sound, you get a sense of the eeriness of the quiet with only their footsteps moving across the, the snow uh, that, that's packing down over the ice. And a sense of just how, I mean, I don't know any other way to put it, mind-numbing the landscape is, but also astonishing, right? Like, it, it's all the same words, but it, it still has this beauty. It has this arresting quality. It, it draws you in. Um, and and he's also, in some, in some ways, he's talking about some of the physical phenomena that were happening at the same time. So one of his, uh, one of his, I will say, colleagues on the, on the trip, Griffiths Taylor, who was a geologist, uh, notes that some, some things that will help you understand the poem, that the surface of the barrier, the barrier is essentially a huge portion of ice that, um, lies across Antarctica that these men had to walk over. The surface of the barrier over large areas often sinks suddenly to a slight degree when it is disturbed by a sledge party. And these men were a sledge party in that they were carrying, hauling these sledges. And this, quote, shudder has a very eerie sound. So that's part of what we're getting here. And then he also says, the glare from the blinding surface affects the eyes much as does a hot substance. And this is independent of the temperature. Hence the remark scorched and froze us through and through. So some of the mystery, I think, of this poem also has a physical and scientific basis. And I find that also very uh, 
compelling and, and part of what's, uh, I think very characteristic and unique to Antarctica. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, and just before we move on to the next poem, I just want to, um, recommend people, um, that there was last year, I think it was last year, um, a project called the Ancient Mariner Big Read, where it had loads of um, actors and authors um, reading The Ancient Mariner. So if people haven't read or listened to that poem recently, once you finish listening to this episode, you can go onto, it's on Spotify and YouTube and search The Ancient Mariner Big Read, and then you can hear a really wonderful rendition of The Ancient Mariner as well while you're in the um antarctic mood um but yeah let's move on to the next poem as well so this poem is written was written almost a hundred years later in 20 it was published in 2010 it was written by a poet elizabeth bradfield who spent quite a bit of time in antarctica and it's called polar autumn and it also captures some of this sense of what it was like back in the day in this heroic age of exploration, as it's called, in, in the early 20th century to be in Antarctica, and also the ways in which some things haven't really changed all that much. Um, so, Polar Autumn. The twilight upon twilight. The letters written and amended and added to, then sealed in the mailbag, shut to their continuing. As if, once inside, they would begin arriving, layers drifting up, months of this, dove wing sky, unshadowed land, or perhaps, rather than unshadowed, all blurred to shade. Even the dreamers, the romantics who linger at day's edge, casting back to sleep, forward to obligation, even they are unmoored in the drifting, drifting light. So this poem I find just astonishing. One thing that it helps to understand about Antarctica in thinking about what is meant by the polar autumn is that particularly at the pole, the very, very axis of the earth, there are, there's only one day and one night and the day lasts six months, and that's the essentially the polar summer. And the night lasts six months, and that's the polar winter. And so autumn and spring are sort of the transition points between day and night. And as you go a little further out to the edges of the continent, it's not quite so stark. And you'll get a little bit of sunshine here and there during the autumn and spring, and you'll get a little bit of darkness as well. But still, autumn is a very different thing. Autumn is a period when the sun, in some cases, at the edges of the, of the continent, is only going to be appearing just a little bit above the horizon, and everything is going to take on this gray twilight shade. And this is going to last for months. So that gives you a sense of the sort of suspension of time and also the suspension of spatial distinctions that come across in this poem. And I think it has in some ways a similarity to all of those rhymes that we heard repeating again and again uh, in the Edward Wilson poem, this sort of 
sameness of the environment. And yet, what a stunning, subtle, beautiful sameness it is. Now, this poem is less sort of epic and dramatic in a sense. And yet, it does capture, I think, the way that Antarctica sort of works its way into the mind. Um, so even the dreamers, these romantics who linger at day's edge in this sort of liminal in-between space of the polar autumn, they, they lose themselves in some way. And the, con- the sort of consistent, untextured image of the place, vision, sound, everything kind of blurring in a way, I think it can be very psychologically challenging. And for people I know that I've talked to who have spent time particularly over the autumn and the winter. So today, most people who go down to Antarctica, and there are thousands of people who go down to do research every year, most of them leave in late summer, well before autumn has really gotten underway, what you might call autumn. Um, and part of that is because it just becomes too dangerous to fly um, for, for the planes to go in and out because it becomes much stormier and much darker. So the people who are left there, they have quite a psychological challenge ahead of them heading into the polar winter. This was really the case if you go back a hundred years ago, particularly when people who first overwintered did so by accident, basically because they got stuck in the ice and they didn't have any choice. And, and there was a sort of, there are these stories about the very first ship that overwintered that got caught in the ice called the Belgicas from Belgium. The, the men who were on the ship created a sort of loop that they would walk around the ship again and again and again and again. Uh, I could say all day, but you know, it was dark all the time. Um, and they called it the madhouse promenade. And it was basically kind of their way of trying to stay sane. And, and you do see in polar winter, some strange things happen in Antarctica, still in polar winter. Some strange deaths. Uh, there have been reports of murders. People sort of get unhinged. So I don't think that that this poem is quite at that level of sort of getting into that psychological darkness, but I think it's contemplating the, the pressure of this environment and, and the immensity of it and how hostile it is to humans and, and the little ways that we find of trying to, uh, sort of constrain and control our lives by writing these letters, putting them in the mail bag and feeling like they're on their way in some sense. Um, it, it's almost a way of putting structure to, to their lives. It's something that all of us, I think, during the pandemic are thinking about quite a lot. Um, this in ways of finding internal structure in what seems like a sea of just sort of undifferentiated time and space. Um, so I, I think this poem, it's amazing how it brings together the psychological, the physical, the visual, uh, and also sort of bridges both the early 20th century experiences and the experiences of Antarctica today. It really captures, I think, what this place can do um, and and is in a way that's much more internal uh, and and quite beautiful. I I also, um, as you were talking, it it kind of reminded me uh, and connected back to what we're talking about towards the beginning here and this, this kind of 
almost warping and overlapping of temporalities that, that, you know, we were talking earlier about how, you know, uh, it, it kind of allows us to visualize these very long-term climate change uh, temporalities. But um, there's also this kind of sense of, of daytime or nighttime getting stretched beyond what, what is our normal kind of human experience. And, and I think that, you know, your point about, um, you know, th- that a similar kind of experience happening during the pandemic and like, what day is it? What's, you know, a lot of us had that kind of disorientation um, uh, in that moment. And so I think there's, there's something else, you know, kind of, kind of connecting to um, this present moment. And again, I right, like, like you said at the beginning, bringing, um, bringing this Antarctic experience to, to other people and, and helping us, um, you know, kind of, kind of connect in other ways, I guess, in, in, in that experience. I will say that I think Antarctica is often represented in uh, popular culture, let's say, not consistently, but often what I call notional Antarctica, which is basically it's a big white place that's cold and there are penguins. And and I think that's how a lot of people think about it um, because it is so remote from our imagination in a lot of ways. And so part of what, what we're talking about here and what you're bringing up, these nuances of what it's like to actually be there, what this place means, how it relates to our lives today, that's a large part of what I'm interested in doing with this book um, is sort of, it's not exactly myth busting. It's more like uh, creating texture where the texture just isn't there in a lot of our understanding of this place because I think a lot of people just don't think about Antarctica at all. And, uh, you know, that makes sense because it is very, very far away. And a lot of people will never get a chance to actually go there. But for all these reasons we've been talking about, it's increasingly important. And it is such a strange place with all this texture and nuance and weirdness. And it is very relevant to us, even from its sort of extreme position, um, and particularly in a lot of ways right now. So that, uh, yeah, I think you've really nicely encapsulated sort of what, um, what I'm trying to do with the book, uh, in terms of not just educate, you know, people on about the science that's going on there, which is complicated and, and, you know, challenging and really interesting and important, but also just to give a sense of what this place is and, and why, why it can make you fall in love uh, why it is so compelling to people who start thinking about it. And, you know, hopefully some people who read the book will also start to fall in love with it um, and start to see it in their lives uh, in a way that, that I certainly have, um, even without having been there yet. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, it sounds like an absolutely incredible project. Um, can't wait to, to read the book. Um, we could talk all afternoon but yeah. um well have, it's morning we, for we, you guys it's afternoon for me <laughs> um we're a global podcast um but yeah we are out of time so it's time to to finish up the episode well i i i i, I would be remiss if i didn't uh segue into this by saying i feel like we've just hit the tip of the iceberg in this conversation but alas <laughs> it's it's time yeah it's time for us to move on and end with a roll i couldn't pass up a pun i mean come on uh so i've got a 12-sided die here i'm gonna give it a toss and we've got 12 questions whichever number comes up we're going to ask you that question so here we go all right so number five was nature important to you as a child 
Yes. Um, and, and I will say, uh, largely because of my mother, uh, who is a visual artist, a painter. Um, and one of the things that she, and she, as she got older, one of the things that she started to do was to create, um, you know, she also sculpted and she started to create these installations out of natural materials. So she would gather sticks together and she would arrange them so that they look like a flowing river. And this was called the river of sticks. And she did a, um, a, a version of this for Thoreau's bicentennial up in Concord. And, and she also did, did one, um, in Maryland. And, and she was always telling me to, to watch the natural world. She was an abstract artist. So she wasn't necessarily when she was painting or sculpting, she wasn't necessarily taking, um, you know, representing trees or flowers or the ocean or things like that. But she was always looking for the way that those things made you feel, how they sort of opened your mind, opened your heart to, uh, I think a lot of the stuff that cognitive science has recently told us the natural world can do for the natural world can do for us, uh, namely finding peace, finding sort of a, an inner sense of, of calm and, and meaning. And, and so I grew up always being told to observe and to watch and, uh, to care about even little things around, around our backyard, um, and I used to love going out and wandering around by myself, you know, pretending I was Julie of the Wolves or something like that. Um, and, uh, and, and it all, it all comes from my mom and, uh, it all goes back to my mom. And actually I'm dedicating this book to her. Um, so, uh, yeah, her, her name was Diane Pontiac and, uh, she is, has always been, I think the, the person who, um, helped me to see why we're here in a sense, or try to find reasons to understand why we're here and how we can sort of protect the protect and find beauty in the places that where we find ourselves. That was a wonderful story. Um, and a really lovely note to end on. Is there a way that people can find out more about you or the project? Do you have any kind of online presence? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, there is a website I've created. It is my name. So it's marissagrunis.com. And, uh, there's a link on that website. There are links on that website to the popular science articles that I've published about Antarctica as well as some other articles. Um, and also to the mailing list that I maintain, uh, somewhat intermittently, which I send, uh, through which I send updates about the project. I should say very intermittently. I think I've only sent one email so far, um, in the last six months. So <laughs> I try not to crowd people's inboxes. Um, I, I sort presumably of you, you'll, uh, presumably you'll email when the book comes out. So yes, I think <laughs> as, yes, there, there are going to be, I think more updates as, as the project sort of is picking up steam and including when the book comes out. And, um, I, I'm hoping to have a couple of articles coming out soon. One on Martian exploration in Antarctica, which is, uh, its own world. Um, so, so, you know, updates about things like that. Uh, I, I've created this little avatar for myself, gone 
underscore incognita. So that's what I use for Twitter uh, as well. Again, rather intermittently. Um, and I have a, a little seal uh, that Beth Simmons, who is a, a lovely, um, a lovely support staff at Palmer Station, photographed lying very contentedly on the beach. Um, Palmer Station is a is a scientific research station in Antarctica. So uh, yeah, you can find that happy little seal, and uh, and there you will find me. Awesome. Yeah, and we'll as always we'll have that stuff in the show notes for anyone who uh, wants easy access to just click on those things. Uh, so yeah, thank you again. This has been a, a really really great discussion. Thank you so much. I I've really enjoyed it. Thank you both. And thank you all for listening. Uh, if you have an idea for a future episode, whether you want to propose an idea for your own or there's somebody in particular you'd like for us to reach out to, you can email us at asley.ecocast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at asley underscore ecocast. And if you've enjoyed the show, please um, subscribe and think about leaving us a review um, to help us reach a bigger audience. Um, And we are, of course, always open to your feedback. So thank you so much. Thank you again, Marissa. And until next time. Bye. Bye.